Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Okay, welcome back, everybody, um, for our final session before we have our drinks afterwards. So, from big stories to short stories. Uh, just one last reminder that if you can fill out the feedback forms, we love to know what you think of the day, so we can. It helps us with our programming uh, for future events. So now to um, our short stories, and they are just that. We have got six fabulous presenters. I'm going to assume you are looking at their bios in the program, and I'm going to just introduce them all quickly. There'll be 10-minute power talks. There won't be any questions. Uh, we've asked all of our speakers to hang around for the drinks afterwards so that you can follow up then um, personally with any questions you might have or any further uh, discussion. Uh, so first up we have Amanda Gearing, freelance journalist. And Amanda, welcome. Uh, welcome. Amanda will be talking about what makes a Walkley winner. Welcome. I hope you've all had a, a very interesting day today. Um, I just came in at the end of the last session, which works... So this session was des designed to and does follow on well from the last session when you've been talking a little bit about uh, democracy and the role of journalism as the fourth estate. When we have a look at Walkley winners, um, a lot of what makes a Walkley winner is to do with that role of journalism as being this for the state. It is the vital role of journalism. It's the role of journalism that is still being funded while limbs are being chopped off the funding tree left, right and centre. One of the few things that remains is the best of investigative journalism. Uh, so that's partly why it's important for us to have a look at what makes a Walkley winner. And and don't we all love to hold that trophy? It, it's lovely and heavy and it, it actually means something. And what, what it means is that you've actually done something that makes a difference to society, to other people, to people who don't have a voice. Um, I, I don't have much of a voice today, but I've got a voice. <laughs> um, so this is, the, this is the watchdog role of journalism. In my PhD research, I've interviewed 15 Walkley Award finalists and winners from the 2013 awards. And, and what, is, what I am seeing emerge is that Walkley Award winners are winning awards for things that are not just journalism that's important in Australia, but journalism that's international, so across two countries, or more countries than that. Um, and and what, what that does is take the fourth estate role of journalism from being domestic within Australia as the fourth pillar of our government uh, to be a global fourth estate. So what we're seeing the beginnings of, the very beginnings of, is what I would call a global fourth estate, where countries where there is democracy can help to bring democracy, freedom, um, do some corruption busting, etc., in countries other than Australia. Sometimes including Australia, but across more countries 
than just domestically. And for me, that is a very exciting development and a development that I think is really important on the global stage. So this is from Brian McNair. The watchdog function of journalism is undertaken on behalf of citizenry. So that is why we would aim for a Walkley Award. It's not just because we, we need to feel that we're important as a journalist. It's be, because we've done something that is important for other people. It's a service to the community. These are the names of the 15 Walkley um, uh, winners and finalists who I interviewed. So you'll see there's some pretty hardcore talent there. What is happening then is that there are, there are some things staying the same and some things are changing. There is no escape from shoe leather journalism. Winning a Walkley and, and by definition doing investigative journalism is always going to take shoe leather. There's no shortcut around being a good interviewer, being a good listener, being a good writer, being good technically with everything that you do with technology. But what, what, is, what I'm looking at then is what are the ingredients that enabled the particular journalists who are the best in their field in this country, what enabled them to get a particular story which won that award and therefore had that community service aspect to it. First of all, they are inventing new, new uses for social media. So when they post to Facebook, they're not just telling us about what they had for breakfast or what their cat did yesterday. They're actually using their, um, their social media for investigative purposes. And I'll give you an example of that in a sec. They are inventing new uses for web-based communication technologies. So whilst you might use a GPS to get from somewhere to somewhere, other journalists are using things like GPS to do investigative journalism. Um, others are using technology to collaborate with other reporters, so using Skype across countries, using email across countries, etc. They're also creating collaborations with other media outlets. So for the first time, for example, in one of the things I did was, was arrange for a collaboration between the Times in London and the Australian in Australia. Now, even though both are owned by News Limited, they had never collaborated on a story before, which seems quite strange, but they hadn't done it. They'd never done the hookup and gone, we will hold the front page, you will hold the front page, and we will publish this together in Australia and in Britain. That is a great development. Um, that's also happening with the ICIJ in more countries than just two. So what I did was interview these journalists and talk to them about their story. The stories are there in the list on the left. And on the right is the types of thing, the things that made the stories possible. So in the first little row, you can see some little boots. Those little boots are because those three stories out of all of them required only and primarily traditional skills. So as you can see, they are really a minority now. They are a minority now. It still exists and the likes of Hedley Thomas and so on, who are the lone wolves, will still do great work. 
But what this shows is that there's something else happening. What is the something else happening? If you have a look a little bit further across with the row of uh, little people icons, the black and white ones, that indicates reporter collaboration. Reporters not working by themselves, working with someone else. Someone else beside them at a desk, more often than not, someone else in another city or another country. So this, this requires a journalist, however, to share a scoop or share what they think might be a scoop with someone else. And that is, for the oldies of us, a bit of a brain warp to see why that is necessary and why that makes the story better or more powerful. So in eight of those winning stories, there was reporter collaboration. Uh, in three, social media investigation was the way that the story became possible. And in two of them, media outlet collaboration was the way that the story was made possible. So let's dig a little into that. So what has happened? The world has changed, as we know, since the arrival of the internet. And so what we have now is a far more networked world. And we can play in our own sandpit, but if we do, we are limited by the bounds of our sandpit. If we connect with the rest of the world, then really there is no, there's nowhere we can't go. There's no country we can't connect with. There's no news source we can't connect with because they're in the network. So what we're seeing is a shift from just sheer journalistic skill to presence in the network and use of the network. So as Manuel Castells is the theorist on this, the presence or absence of individuals in the network are critical and flows of power become less important than the power of flows. What that means is where it used to be very important for journalists to know, and it still is, the powerful people across all of your rounds and all of the subjects that you report on, it's equally important, if not more important, to have connections with all the possible news sources that there are. And I'll show you why that is. So there is a form of communication, such as Facebook, which is free, it is global, and it is instant. We've not had it before. We have to get our head around, what does this mean? How does this empower an investigative journalist to do their job better. There are lots of ways, and I'll give you one example in a minute. There is Twitter. That is free, it is global, and it is instant. That's just a little snapshot of, of me in the middle and the people that I'm connected to on Twitter. So as you can see, that's, it's not more than my contact book. My contact book is an old, thick contact book, and um, I take it with me everywhere. But my Twitter connections are also significant because if I need something and it's not scoop sensitive, I can get to a lot of people quickly, instantly. So if we look at those Walkley Award winners again, you'll see that big orange lot there. The stories that won Walkley Awards came almost half 
from people that the journalists did not know before they got that story. So they're not coming out of their contact books, they're coming off those networks. Okay. So here's an example. Um, the, flood Royal the Flood Commission is running at the moment. This gives you a little insight into how I did the research which led to this Flood Commission that's running out now. So what we had was helicopter vision taken by TV channels. So what we did was do some, some screenshots of people on roofs. We had no idea who they were. And we posted that. And within a couple of days, we had those people identified so we could interview them and get the information we needed. That hasn't been possible before. That's on a secret Facebook group. Okay, on Twitter, this was an example from uh, Ben Doherty. He was in Thailand when the red shirts came in. He'd never used Twitter, but everything else was down and he turned to Twitter. And as he says, on the final day when the army moved in and killed everyone, it was a pretty horrific day. You couldn't move around. People were updating via Twitter saying, there are soldiers on this street, they're marching this way, the bullets are coming, they're firing this way, there are people that have been hit here. Now there's breaking news. There was no way for him to get that back to Australia apart from using Twitter. And that's when he became a convert to the power of using Twitter. Web-based communications, this is about a, a con the Concrete Creek story with Sugarloaf State Conservation Area. And, and I've got the wind up. So what they did was use GPS to locate that damage and get back to it with a follow-up which, which broke the story. And that's the picture of the creek where the concrete was actually run down into it by a mining company. Reported collaboration. This is between um, Sarah White in Australia and Ben Doherty in India. And they were the ones who helped to break down the power of the, um, the scab labour in the clothing industry in Bangladesh, Australians, and the head of the ICRJ is an Australian guy, and they broke the tax haven investigation which ran out in 46 countries across newspaper, radio, television in one day. And that forced the G20 to change the way they they manage tax and manage the world economy. There's power. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, our next uh, speaker up is Peter Taggart. Bring a plate. So you want to make a podcast. Welcome, Peter. Uh, chances are your Uncle Ron and my Uncle Dave just discovered that podcasting was a thing last year, and the only podcast they think exists is Sarah Koenig's murder mystery phenomenon, Serial. And who am I to tell them differently? Today I wanted to quickly talk about podcasting beyond Serial, what I've learned from my own experience, and how you might go about creating your own podcast. Uh, my name is Peter Taggart and I host a pop culture comedy podcast called Bring a Plate with my friend and fellow writer Rebecca Shaw. We've been doing the podcast for two years now and I haven't yet quit like I have with most other things in life. This doesn't make me an authority but I do listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, here are just a few on regular rotation. 
podcasting has allowed me to talk about exactly what I want to talk about, to write jokes for a platform that I didn't otherwise have, and essentially be my own editor, a total power trip. Everyone's experience is different, so I asked the hosts of some of my favourite podcasts what they felt they got out of the medium. Uh, comedian Tom Ballard says his podcast, Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, allows him a chance to be wrong, for his biases to show, to be challenged, and foster a genuine, consistent relationship with an audience while being totally himself. And Michelle Laurie, who already has a five-day-a-week gig in Melbourne commercial radio, told me her nitty-gritty committee podcast grants her creative freedom and no compromises. Michelle says commercial radio and television are often about navigating compromises to try to find an outcome you can live with at least. Podcasting is a breath of fresh air in that context. I think while podcasting certainly gives you more room to explore, the tried and tested rules of creating quality radio shouldn't fly out the window just, just because they can. For instance, good editing will always be important. There's nothing wrong with using all the tools at your disposal. Don't be preoccupied with making something stripped back and raw in the hope that it translates as indie and cool. Use a little music and sound effects, have an intro, um, one of my favourite intros is from the uh, Starly Kind's podcast Mystery Show. It pretty much just uses an old um, Sparks song from the 70s and in a 30-second block, Starly sets out exactly what the podcast is about. Uh, now, if you're going to have a regular co-host or guest, try and create a good dynamic. It's what they've been hammering into breakfast radio teams for decades and you should agree and disagree endlessly. Be passionate about what you're saying, and if you can't be, you might be talking about the wrong thing. And have a structure. Unless you're a professional improviser, I think some kind of structure, however loose, is so important. It's a safety net beneath the tightrope. Even a podcast like Comedy Bang Bang, an improvised show that can shoot off in a million directions, has a structure at its core. It's not just about stability for you, but for your audience. Your school principal slash drill sergeant was right. We do instinctively crave structure. Don't sacrifice that to make a spectacle of your own cleverness. I'm now going to pose some uh, technical questions and answer them uh, Kevin07 style. Uh, what equipment do I need? Uh, you know that old saying, there's more than one way to skin a cat and make a podcast? Well, it's true. There's numerous guides online. You can choose to use more equipment or less, but here's what we use to record and edit Bring a Plate. Uh, microphones, pretty self-explanatory. Get the best ones you can afford because it might be the most important element. Uh, XLR cords to plug the microphones into your soundboard. Uh, ours looks just like the picture, although ours has more dust and food on it. Um, this will help you adjust microphone levels and a laptop or even an iPad. And uh, finally, get some editing software you're comfortable with using. For example, I use the software Audacity because that's the first ever editing program I used and it's completely free. Uh, where do I host it? For us, we use a site called Squarespace, which we discovered via a podcast. It's incredibly simple to use. Uh, $8 a month gives you unlimited storage and it has a great how-to guide for uploading podcasts. We also use SoundCloud, which we discovered, uh, sorry, we also use SoundCloud, which a lot of radio networks around the country and around the world use now to upload stories or even full programs. 
Uh, it's a bit more interactive than Squarespace and just offers choice, another platform for people to listen on. And for a, lot of, uh, for a lot of people, the most important thing is getting the podcast on iTunes. It doesn't cost a penny. You just need a site like Squarespace or SoundCloud to host the audio, and it takes them a few days to approve. How do I build an audience? Uh, learn to be a self-promotional wanker. It's kind of a necessary evil, especially in the first few months when you start. Uh, use Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. If you already have an established account with friends or followers, all the better. Without social media listeners, our listener would be my mother, and sometimes she does not care for it. Uh, if you have a semi-regular gig writing for a website, reference the podcast in your bio. People who already enjoy your written work are the most likely to listen to your podcast. And get people to subscribe to your show in iTunes. It gives you a bump in the charts and might land you on the front podcasting page of iTunes. And finally, be consistent. Uh, I'm the worst person to be giving this advice. In terms of a release schedule, our podcast is terribly inconsistent and it's one of our biggest failings. But above all, stick with it. If the first episode doesn't set the podcasting world on fire, knuckle down and make more. Can I make my fortune from podcasting? Adam Sachs from the agency Midroll uh, works as something of a broker between advertisers and podcasters. He says a successful podcast can make between $250,000 and $400,000 per year in ad revenue. Often that ad revenue is afforded to podcasts which are part of an established podcasting network. But there are alternate ways to make money from your show. An interesting example from this year is the writer Clem Ford's success on a site called Patreon. Uh, Clem decided to start a feminist podcast called The Misandry Hour and allowed people to pledge an amount of their choosing per month in return for a weekly, fortnightly or monthly product. Uh, in this instant, a monthly podcast. Depending on the success of the Patreon campaign, she can pay a decent wage to a producer, give a fee to guests per episode, cover her own costs and perhaps increase the, uh, increase the frequency with which episodes are released. But truth be told, people caught up in the mining downturn aren't exactly investing in podcasts as their next cash cow. More than anything, podcasting affords opportunity. It widens your skill set. It allows you to test out new ideas, to learn and fail, to create community and an audience for your work into the future. And finally, uh, one last question. Did Adnan do it? I think he did, yes. <laughs> Thank you. You make it all sound too easy, Peter. Okay, so our, our next uh, speaker, uh, short story, is, is um, one of our first winners of the Walkley Innovation Grants. Please welcome Sky Doherty on journalism and the power of design. Hello, um, thank you for coming. Journalism needs some new ideas. It needs new practices, it needs new formats and new platforms, as it needs its own people to invent them, to be able to manipulate and control them. This is how journalists will be able to shape and determine the future of their craft. It's how values such as the right to know and the public interest will continue to underpin journalism in the future, no matter how the technology evolves. Technology has changed all aspects of how we do journalism. We can see it in the way that news organisations publish on multiple platforms, 
in the enthusiasm of journalists on Twitter and the interactive features and data visualisations that are now part of the storytelling mix. We've got our heads around multimedia, interactivity, social media, the need for deeper engagement with our audiences. The trouble is that these aren't our ideas. We didn't develop the social tools that enable this interactivity and we certainly don't control them. Instead, we have adapted our journalistic practice to fit the needs of the social networks and the digital platforms that our audiences prefer in many ways over traditional media products. But what will we do when the communication technologies move out of the screen and into our clothes? When news is delivered via our coffee pot? Or when intelligent robots process and filter facts and output narratives according to an algorithm rather than the public interest? Advances in wearable computing, the Internet of Things, robotics, artificial intelligence, and the theoretical potential of quantum computing mean the media of the future are un is unlikely to resemble the formats that we're familiar with. In fact, the pace of technological change is so fast that we cannot predict what technologies we'll be using in 10 years' time or who will control them. The point is that our current ways of producing, distributing, and managing journalistic work are not sufficient to ta tackle the computational challenges that are coming. The way we have integrated social media, mobile media and interactive media into journalism is unlikely to apply to robots or artificial intelligence. We need to build resilience into our practice so that as technology changes, we are able to adapt and accommodate it in a way that preserves the essence of journalism. Already, news organisations rely on tech companies to distribute their content. Facebook's instant articles is a case in point. But is this really ideal? Is this how we should be reaching our readers? Emily Bell, who directs the Tao Centre for Digital Journalism in the, in the US, makes this point. She says that social networks don't necessarily like or share the responsibilities the media has. Verifying facts, protecting sources are important to journalists, but software companies don't give a tours. She argues that we need to get to a point where the values of journalism are part of software, just as much as software systems are a part of journalism. To do this, I think, we need to design journalistic tech. The way to do that is through design. Now, design is not a secret practice. It's not magical. It doesn't require a talent for drawing. Design is a process. It's a way of looking at a problem and finding a creative solution to it. Solutions that are specific to the issues and the needs of the users. It's a collaborative, people-focused and practical process of research, designing, prototyping, evaluating and iterating. It's the process I use to create the NewsCube. The NewsCube is an interactive 3D storytelling tool that was created to solve the problem of hyperlinks in news stories. To create a way of using links so that they give readers the ability to see stories from multiple perspectives and give them a level of control over the narrative. I started with research into hypertext and its potential as a storytelling tool. I then analysed news stories, news packages, news apps to find out whether they lived up to the potential. They didn't. Journalists predominantly linked past coverage. Sometimes they take readers to primary sources, but they rarely use hypertext to give readers some level of narrative control.
There was no sign of spatial hypertext or shape as a navigation device, nor were there any specific journalistic tools. And this is something that fiction writers have been developed 20 years ago. This is all fertile ground and provided plenty of evidence to fuel my designing activities. Now, I'm not an artist. I can draw a diagram, I can use a glue stick, wield a pair of scissors if I need to, but that's enough to begin designing. My sketches and low fidelity prototypes, which you can see here, are the balsa wood cubes, the wireframes, they show how an abstract idea of using a cube to tell a story began to take shape. And working through this process means I could begin to map out the functionality, how this would work, what it would do, how could you tell a story in six sides, what would happen when you touched it and moved it and how would it work. And those wireframes at the bottom, they tell that story. These artifacts, these designs, embody the news cube concept and the thinking involved in bringing it to fruition. They meant I could then approach a developer and get them to code and create a digital prototype. This was the original digital prototype. You could, it had some basic functionality. You could create a cube, you could add some content to it. Uh, you could create relationships between pieces of content and create ideas between them. You couldn't share it, you couldn't collaborate on it. But I suggested that ability through buttons that didn't work yet. This is enough to get some feedback. So it was deployed to potential users, working journalists, former journalists, people working in media startups. They used the tool and then I spoke to them about what they thought about it, what was their experience. And they told me that the NewsCube was fun and engaging, but it was hard to use. They valued the tactility of the interface and the idea that it could be collaborative. They also liked the way that it simplified a complex topic. So this gave me a steer on what to fix, what to forget, and then thanks to the Walkley Innovation Grant, I was able to iterate and push the NewsCube into a beta phase. Which is this one. The NewsCube's not the answer to more interactive journalism, but that's not its point. It's an experiment, and it represents a new possibility. It tells us that tactility, collaboration, playfulness, information synthesis are features that users find valuable. And this kind of information can influence future designs for news. Designing allows us to look outside of ourselves, outside of the practice that we're familiar with, and see how it might change, to get new ideas. It's not complex, you can do it cheaply, and that means that you can generate ideas, try them out, evaluate them, improve them, with little impact on established production. The techniques do not require extensive training to master. What it does require is some curiosity, a little headspace, an opportunity and a willingness to see things differently and to drop bad ideas. The result will be a better idea, a new possibility, an opportunity to change and potentially to innovate. The technology theorist W. Brian Arthur says that advanced innovative technology comes not from knowledge but from deep craft. Deep craft, he says, is more than knowledge. It is a set of knowings, knowing what is likely to work and what will not work, and knowing how to manipulate newly discovered phenomena. Journalism has this deep craft, a craft that if given the opportunity to explore new boundaries, could well drive its own innovation and determine its own future. Thank you.
Thank you. Thanks, Sky. Uh, next up, we have um, the ABC's interactive digital storytelling editor, Matt Liddy. Is Matt here? Oh, yeah, Matt, sorry. <laughs> okay, welcome. Come up and uh, share your short story. Um, so I thought this afternoon, speaking late in the day, um, everyone's energy levels might be a little bit low, um, too little caffeine or maybe too much caffeine as the case may be. Um, so what better to uh, kick things off than a listicle? Um, so we're going through nine things freelancers should know about digital storytelling. I think I've got eight to um, ten minutes, so we'll, we'll keep moving. Um, but I thought I'd kick off with an introduction as well, um, let you know who I am. Um, so I'm the editor of the ABC News Interactive Digital Storytelling Team. Uh, we were set up at the beginning of last year and have been up and running for about 18 months uh, with the goal of kind of telling stories using creative tools and formats, uh, telling original stories in new ways for digital platforms. Uh, so we've done a whole range of work, um, some of which is featured up there, things like Vote Compass as well, um, before and after imagery that some people may have seen. We've done work with data, we've done work with visuals, mapping, interactives, explainers, quizzes, polls, and as already mentioned, the odd listicle. Um, so look, the first point I wanted to talk about was that news organisations have an increasing desire for rich content. So including interactive data visualisations, rich visuals, digital first videos, striking photos, news cubes, news games, news applications and more. Um, the reason why news organisations want this kind of content is because we know that audiences want this kind of content. Um, and if you don't want to take my word for it, listen to Mark Zuckerberg, um, who increasingly is one of the most important people in the digital news landscape. On to point two. Um, I won't dwell on this one too much, but I just wanted to make the point that there's no one right way to tell a story, and that carries over to digital as much as it does to any other medium. Um, digital storytelling can come in many forms. Um, I don't frown on a good Facebook update any, you know, that's no less a means of telling a story than a massive New York Times interaction, interactive. Um, it could even be an animated GIF. But any story um, is a series of decisions on the part of the storyteller. You have to make decisions about your research, your reporting, about the format, about the presentation, and about distribution. And those will all lead to very different outcomes for the audience. Sometimes successful ones, sometimes less so. So while I say there's not one right way to tell any given story, I do think that there's a right way to approach the process of making those, de those decisions that you have to make. Um, so I would strongly recommend the process of thinking about the audience first. Uh, so I could have come along here today and just basically spoken about my own work, our own work as a team, what we do, um, but I kind of thought, well, what would freelancers want to know? I could have, you know, to steal a term, been a self-promotional wanker. Um, but I tried to focus on what you guys might like to know, what could be of relevance to a, to a freelance audience. Um, so as you're making those decisions about your story, I think it's worth focusing on the audience and asking yourself some of these 
types of questions. Who is the audience? What are their needs? How can I fulfil those? And then, what's the story? What's the best way to tell it? Um, on the flip side, this is a question that I think gets asked a lot. It's getting asked in newsrooms about stories. It's getting asked in businesses that want their marketing campaigns to go viral. Um, but look, I really fairly strongly believe it's the wrong starting point for any story. Um, any project that I've been involved with or that I'm aware of really that's um, gone viral has more started from the point of delivering value to the audience rather than just how do we go viral. Uh, another point that I thought was worth making was with your stories, it's really useful to think digital from the beginning. It's important to have the person who's writing the story, the person who's taking the photographs, the person who's doing the research, kind of just aware of the fact that it might be a digital product and how it might come together. You can't really do a long-form photo essay like this one without the photographer thinking about how they're composing and framing their photos in the field so that it will fit this format. Just the same as you can't put together a Four Corners television program after spending time shooting, you know, expecting to put together a three-minute package. Um, if you do think digital from the beginning, you can end up with very powerful products that you can't tell you can end up with powerful stories that you can't tell in other mediums. So you can't let your audience interact with your magazine photos and you can't read out a list of a thousand addresses on television, but you can make those available to your audience on digital. Another point just worth touching on is we know that mobile's eating the world. We know that um, digital audiences are increasingly on their mobile phones, as I am right now. Um, many stories that we publish will be seen by more people on a mobile than on a desktop. So again, in that decision tree of working on your story, it's really valuable to be thinking about the implications of that right from the beginning of the process. <clears throat> the needs and demands of the digital audience are different from the television audience and the print audience. And similarly, we're increasingly finding that the needs and demands of the mobile audience are different from the desktop audience we're used to serving. So if you're a newspaper journalist, traditionally, I guess you'd file your story and go home safe in the knowledge that it'll be subbed and uh, placed in the paper <coughs> and land on someone's lawn the next morning. Um, you know that there's going to be an audience for that product. Um, these days, the digital audience and the way it works is that increasingly you have to sell your story. Um, and the journalist should be a part of this as much, of it, as, much as the editor. Um, Noah Rosenberg spoke this morning about the way you can reach out to communities of interest who might be interested in sharing your story. Um, so every story does start with an audience of zero these days. Um, there are rare publications that have a position <coughs> of an audience coming to their homepage but more and more people are fighting it out in social media for, those, um, for people to look at your story. Following up on that, I'd just say it's worth um, thinking about Facebook. Um, as journalists, we tend to be fairly focused on Twitter, and uh, Twitter is a very important platform. It's useful particularly for freelancers, people who need to network and meet, um, meet editors, work together, collaborate. Um, but in terms of reaching an audience, Facebook is really um, much more powerful than Twitter. 
a very common question these days is whether journalists should learn to code. Um, my answer would be that if you feel you've got the capacity and the ability and the time, um, go for it. But it's not the only path. There's a lot of tools out there that can help you to visualise data. There's ways of learning to do that. Which gets us to the next point. Another common question is, how do I get started? How do I do this? Um, my answer again would be, just do it. Um, I think if you look around the world, you see a lot of people moving into this industry by creating their own portfolios, doing their own work. There's a lot of free tools and a lot of free platforms for distribution. Um, and that's where I'd be looking to start if I were looking to, uh, to get into the field. Um, and that's the nine. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Matt. That was, uh, we can learn a lot from that. Okay, next up we have um, Rebecca Rowling, who works with the Australian Red Cross on educating journalists on international humanitarian law. Even wars have laws. This is a fundamental tenet of international humanitarian law and a maxim of the Australian Red Cross. I stand before you today as a proud representative of the Australian Red Cross IHL program. I also stand before you today in a world that is radically different from the one in which the Geneva Conventions were drafted. In conflict, journalists bear witness to events that those in power do not want publicised. Journalists are a source of intelligence, a combatant, a weapon, a target, and a battlefield. The last few years have been a particularly dangerous time to be a journalist. The Press Emblem campaign reported that in 2015 already, 84 journalists have been killed. Disturbing trends emerging in conflict zones have been problematic for IHL, notably the rise of non-state armed forces, such as those in the self-declared Islamic State, or ISIS. My short story today is not out to shock, but instead to present a series of case studies so that you may understand the norms of IHL and the ethical difficulties of capturing humanitarian crises through a lens. The four Geneva Conventions of 1949 offer protection to wounded, sick and shipwrecked members of the armed forces, prisoners of war and civilians. After the atrocities of the Vietnam War in 1977, the two additional protocols were developed and adopted by many states. War correspondents are a special type of journalists and they're accredited by the armed force that they accompany. War correspondents are entitled to a high level of protection under IHL, in particular in relation to their treatment as prisoners of war. Some ambiguity surrounds the use of embedded journalists who are entitled to prisoner of war status if they're captured. Their ranks have been rising since 2003 when the Pentagon decided to embed hundreds of journalists with US military forces in Iraq. Journalists who are not embedded are civilians and cannot be deliberately targeted. The International Committee of the Red Cross, or the ICRC, takes the view that freelancers, or stringers, or unilaterals in journalist jargon, are also protected. Journalists enjoy the extensive protections granted to civilians under IHL, including protection from violence, murder, and humiliating and degrading treatment. Radio and television facilities are also protected against direct attack as they are civilian objects under IHL. However, journalists lose their protection against deliberate attacks if they take a direct part in hostilities. Under IHL, journalists must be mindful of human dignity or anything bordering on public curiosity. 
American freelance journalist James Foley was abducted on 22nd of November 2012 while working in northwest Syria. He was beheaded by ISIS in August 2014. On 21 August 2014, the Daily Telegraph, a News Corp publication, published a front page image of Foley with a knife held flush against his throat. Not the image that I'm showing here, obviously. The Daily Telegraph editor, Paul Whitaker, said, the Daily Telegraph published the image of Foley because we do not believe it is the role of the media to self-censor. A similar image featured on the front page of the New York Post, also a News Corp publication. Does this cross the line? Well, the US Muslim Public Affairs Council argued that it does, and that de delivering such images would actually help terrorists share their propaganda. Implementing the rules of IHL is not always clear cut. A panel of journalists, luminaries, presented to a packed Australian Red Cross panel here in Brisbane last week at the Banco Court, including two personalities you might have heard from earlier today, Tim Page and Cindy Wachner. War correspondent and film producer Michael Ware was also there. He is the only war correspondent to survive kidnap by Al-Qaeda. He touched on two conundrums that journalists face. When did journalists lose their civilian status and become a direct participant in hostilities? Picture this. You're an embed. You're traveling with US soldiers in Iraq. The soldiers are engaged in defensive machine gun fire against insurgents when a machine gun runs out of ammunition. You're sitting on the ammunition box. You get up, you pick up the ammunition, and you hand it to the US soldier. In this act, are you directly participating in hostilities? This is similar to a story that we're told last week. I'm not here to provide a detailed treatment of the law. Suffice to say that it turns on three tests, being threshold of harm, direct causation, and belligerent nexus. Do journalists have a duty to intervene to stop the commission of a war crime? In his new documentary, Only the Dead, Ware said that there was an incident that he witnessed and he filmed where he had a choice to intervene. All he had to do was to say something and the events would have changed. Instead, he kept filming. He said, that's the dark chamber of my heart that I found. Did Ware have a duty to intervene? Legally? No. Journalistically, Ware said that he made a clear choice to observe and record and by capturing one moment of horror, he hoped to achieve a much greater good. Morally, well, I'll leave that up to you. As I mentioned earlier, journalists are increasingly at risk of being captured and detained. In terms of IHL, in an international armed conflict, prisoner of war protections are afforded to war correspondents and ensures that they do not find themselves subject to arbitrary detention or mistreatment. Freelance journalists may only be detained for security reasons or if an offence has been committed and are entitled to humane treatment and contact with the ICRC. Some journalists have not been so lucky. Only last week, an Egyptian court delayed the verdict in Peter Gress' retrial until 29 August 2015. As you would know, Gress and his two Al Jazeera colleagues were arrested in December 2013, charged with aiding a terrorist organisation and broadcasting false news, charges they strenuously deny. Grest warned, the serious erosion of respect for journalists is not limited to ISIS. 
governments are targeting journalists in ways that they haven't in the past. Here's an example now of the great work that the ICRC does in the field. French journalist Romeo Longlois, reporter for France 24, was covering a counter-narcotic operation by the Colombian army when he was captured by the FARC in 2012. Longlois was wounded in the arm and declared a prisoner of war. Fortunately, he was released to a team of delegates, including ICRC representatives. The ICRC has a 24-hour hotline for journalists. Whenever a journalist disappears, is captured or is arrested, his or her family, employer or a press association may alert the ICRC. Since 2011, over 60 journalists have received assistance through the ICRC hotline. Despite wide-scale violations, the tenants of IHL remain crucial for journalists working in dangerous areas. For more information, I invite you to read the recently published Australian Red Cross IHL magazine, The Pen and the Sword. The challenge for journalists, the Australian Red Cross and the ICRC is to uphold the norms of IHL and regularly renew consensus. The Red Cross maxim, even wars have laws, is now more pertinent than ever before. Thank you, Rebecca. Okay, now for our last short story, Hamish Sewell will tell us all about his project, Sound Trails. It's the early evening. You're on the main street of a regional town. And here you are, with your mobile in your hand, your app downloaded, your headphones on. On the screen of your mobile is a map of the town and you're surrounded by sound fields and you're the pulsing dot. You cross the street and you walk into a sound field. You're outside an old theatre and it's opening night, 1936. There's Greek music, speeches and laughter. You walk down to the stock and station agent, and now you're with old Keith Moore, who at 13 dug in the town's power poles with his father. And then you're down on the river with the local kids at the swimming hole. There's laughter and splashing, and someone singing the blues. Everywhere you go, the place comes alive, as if the country is speaking to you and you alone. Hi, my name's Hamish Sewell, and for the last 18 months, I've worked in regional towns recording and producing audio stories for Sound Trails. Sound Trails works along the lines of what I've described here. It's an app that connects stories to place. And users can see themselves on a map that uses GPS that tracks where they walk as they go in and out of sound stories. The stories are one and a half to four minutes long, and vary in style from radio docos through to more experimental sound pieces. The stories are highly produced, and where possible, we try to marry them to the authenticity of the location, the place, and the people. The platform can house multiple sound trails on one platform. So this means that you could have potentially a thousand places on the one app. 
This is a very powerful draw card for regions that are hungry for visitors, especially when you've got a cluster of sound trails in the one area. The sound trails platform launched last year uh, with both a sound trails app and also an online component. And by October this year, we'll have eight sound trails in the mix. To date, We've worked largely in the New England and Northwest area of New South Wales. And as a producer, I found this a really rich and interesting experience. I've worked really closely with communities and I've got to know a lot of people and heard a lot of stories. And each of the communities and each of the sound trails that we produce has a very different DNA. So far, we've worked in the towns of Urella, Bingara, Tenterfield, and the lesser-known town of Warrialda. They're not exactly cultural centres, but they're actually very unique. So how does it work? What happens? Well, first of all, we're invited to a town, and then we work along a group of key locals who are something of the door openers into the community. These guys uh, help us kind of think through what it might be like to work a sound trail in this town. So we look at um, how big the sound trail might be, who the talent might be in that community, where the resources are, how many sound stories we might engage in. It's, it's quite an organic process and it's, it's very rich and quite an exciting process. So I'd like now to look at, at just quickly one of the stories within these community-based sound trails, and this is a guy called Charlie Woollett. It's just one of the stories among the many stories which, which we've produced. And Charlie was a bit of a larrikin in his time, and in the 60s he owned a Cessna 150. And while we were working in Warrialda, we heard that Charlie had flown his uh, Cessna 150 under the Gravesend Railway Bridge. So we thought that was a good story. And we interviewed Charlie and he talked about it and he talked about you know, how he eyed it up on the day and he flew under there and uh, we thought, great, that's a wrap. Anyway, the next day, Charlie's back again and he looks very chastened and he says, I didn't do it. And we said, well, what happened? And he said, well, he said, I was about to fly under the bridge but I actually flew over and the fishermen who were on the the river at the day, they were so busy running for their lives that they didn't see that I didn't fly under the bridge. And so I went to the pub that afternoon and they said to me, Charlie, you stupid bastard, you flew under the railway bridge, didn't you? And he said, yes. <laughs> and so for 50 years that story struck until that day we recorded him. And he fronted up to us and he admitted to the error of his ways only because he couldn't live with the fact that someone might try to copy it if they were to hear this, the story was to go public. Another story in Bingara, which is one of my favourites, is where we marry, uh, marry uh, where we combine uh, a, a, about 12 photos that, that go across 160 years of the local town's weddings, and we combine them with this ballad which some songwriters wrote in the town called The Brides of Bingara, and we mix that with uh, little audio excerpts from a guy who compiled the photography book. And it's quite remarkable. So I'm not sure if you're aware, but 
Um, on the app itself, when you're in a sound field, when you walk into a sound field, you can scroll across multiple images as that story is playing. Another type of sound trail which we've been working in the New England Northwest region is what I might describe as the more issue-based sound trail. And this is where there's a kind of a principle or there's a history to this site. One of the first ones that we worked on was based at Mile Creek, which is the massacre site, which is two hours west of Armidale. And arguably, it's one of the most powerful sites for reconciliation in Australia today. Another couple of sound trails which are launching next Tuesday are based on the Freedom Rides. One's based at the Moree Baths in Moree, and the other one's based in Walgett at the RSL. And this is, a, I guess, a document around the Freedom Rides in 1965, where a bunch of the students from Sydney University uh, went and highlighted the entrenched racism and segregation out in regional towns in New South Wales. And another sound trail, which is again launching on next Tuesday, which is one of my favourite at the moment, is around the Aboriginal section of the Moree Cemetery. And I've worked really closely with one of the elders in Moree called Auntie Nolene Briggs-Smith. And the, the sound trail is really, I guess, a, a creative chronicle of the men who went off to fight in the war, the Aboriginal men who fought in the war, the background to the cemetery and what it was like for these guys when they came back to Moree in the late 40s. So I just have a, a quick look at, at one story, which is in these issue-based sound trails, and this is from Mile Creek. And uh, here we've got a story on John Fleming. And I'm not sure if you're aware of the story behind Mile Creek, but basically there were seven stockmen who were convicted of slaughtering 28 Aborigines in 1938. It's the only time, to, to my mind, that, um, that they were actually, uh, the uh, people who were involved in a massacre were su successfully prosecuted. Uh, and John Fleming was one of the stockmen, he was the son of a squatter who actually got away. Now, no one really knew what happened to John Fleming, but um, we did a little bit of research on this, and this man turned up by the name of Barry Brown, and he was a descendant of John Fleming. And basically, uh, he talked about how John Fleming had been hidden down in the Hunter Valley, and then he turned up two years later, and he lived a perfectly normal life as a married man, as a local councillor, and a uh, local magistrate. And to me, the story is very powerful, not only because it, I guess, it, uh, it's a document on the, the, uh, the acceptance of people who are both upstanding citizens and mass murderers, but it's made doubly more powerful for me because I managed to find this very obscure song by a nine-year-old girl called John Fleming, which is addressing this topic. Uh, that's a picture of the um, Aboriginal section of the Maori grave, and I'm not going to talk about that. So these issue-based sound trails here, and you can see a picture here of um, Charlie Perkins with the Aboriginal kids in the Maori bars. These issue-based ones are, I can't emphasise enough, extremely powerful ways of engaging with stories on landscape. And, and um, you know, we talk a lot about there being images on screens and wanting to see audio-visual stuff. But I tell you, when you walk out on these sites and you're in the middle of nowhere, you don't need mobile coverage, you've got satellite tracking you, and this story lifts up and you've got it playing between your ears, it 
rocks. It really rocks. Now, one of the issues that we're having a bit with sound trails is with technology and the elderly. We're working out in regional communities, and of course, when people come into these communities and they want to do something, it's five o'clock at night, or they want, to, they want to find out a little bit about the town, then of course, the people who are working in the visitors' information centre are often uh, volunteers, and many of them are retired. And technology and uh, people over the 60s, they don't quite go together sometimes, and there's often a bit of tension there. So you try uh, running a workshop with a group of volunteers from information centres and talking to them about uh, Wi-Fi's, downloads, Apple username, passwords, mobile systems, operating systems, and they start to glaze over. And, and this is a bit of an issue for us, and it's one we're, we're still kind of working on. But fortunately, we've got people like Arnold Good here from, uh, from Armadale, and he's just such a wonderful repository of local information. So these guys are really right in there, in the sound trail. And of course, come opening day, come the launch day for the sound trails, they are down there, and they want to hear their story that they can share with their kids and their grandkids. Another issue which is coming out for us a little bit, uh, it's not such a big deal, but it's around the gatekeepers in these communities. And who are the, uh, the people who consider themselves the rightful owner of the stories? And um, often we'll get, uh, when we're doing a sound trail in an area, we'll get someone from the local heritage society turning up, or someone from a heritage house, an old uh, historic place, and they very much see that it's their rightful place to have their story on the sound trail. And um, unfortunately, sometimes these people aren't necessarily the best storytellers, or there's not really much of a story there. It's a very flat, dead story. So when we're working with the small group of people, we sort of play each other off, and they often say that it's Hamish's decision, and I often say it's their decision. But we, we sort of we, we tread quite carefully with these people to make sure that they're dealt with respectfully, but we're not necessarily hostage to their agenda. And the last issue that I just wanted to raise around working in the communities with Soundtrail is this idea of stories where you need to tread carefully, where there might be some real sensitivities there, but you stumble across it. So by way of a fairly light-hearted example, when we were in Urella uh, last year, we kept coming across these, uh, these rumours that Urella was this rampant lesbian town. And um, we, we, we sort of couldn't quite work it out, but apparently in the 70s and the 80s, all the Katie Lang CDs were sold out, and that itself was testimony to the fact that Urella had been a lesbian town. So we thought, we, we, we all kind of got, got the giggles about this, and we thought we might do a story on it, but one of the women in particular really got her back up about it. And um, I think she felt that we were trying to set them up. We were trying to set some people up here. So what do we do here? We just don't go there. We basically back off at that point. And the reason for that is because these relationships that we build with these people in these communities is absolutely paramount. The goodwill that we have with um, these people that, that they would offer and contribute their stories is, is just integral. You know, Pat Brown here from Bingara, she's dead now, she died two months ago. Five of her brothers signed up for the Second World War. Three of them came back, one of them with, uh, you know, serious uh, brain damage. You know, these are brave stories, these are, these are generous stories, these are risk-taking stories. So I don't feel like we're necessarily hostage to um, 
to stay away from the difficult stories, but I do think that that exchange and that relationship that we have with these communities when we're working out here is really important for us. So in conclusion, I just wanted to say that Sound Trails is not a glorified museum tour. Sound Trails is not a history walk. Sound Trails is many things. Sound Trails is a new form of community media. And the goodwill of the town and the trust and the respect that's built into this relationship is absolutely paramount. Also, I think, in here is an appreciation of the role of stories in helping stitch together an understanding of who we are as people, who we are as communities, and our connections with the place. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.